featuring interviews and commentary from Animal Rights Zone, the online social network for humans who seek justice for other animals. You can find us on the web at www.arzone.net. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. Today's episode features our special guest, Dr. Andrew Knight. Today, Andrew and I will be joined by ARZone admins, Tim Geyer and Ronnie Lee. Dr. Andrew Knight is an Australian bioethicist and European veterinary specialist in welfare science, ethics and law, who lives and practices veterinary medicine in London. Andrew is a fellow of the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics, which is dedicated to advancing the ethical status of animals through academic research, teaching and publication. He's also the director of Animal Consultants International, which provides multidisciplinary expertise for animal issues, as well as a spokesperson for Animals Count, a British political party for people and animals. Andrew has produced over 50 scientific publications on animal issues. His key publications include a major series examining the contributions to human health care of animal experiments. His work has attracted several awards at international scientific conferences and forms the basis for his 2010 PhD, as well as providing the foundations for his 2011 book, The Costs and Benefits of Animal Experiments. Andrew's other publications have examined the contributions of the livestock sector to climate change, vegan companion animal diets, the animal welfare standards of veterinarians, and the latest evidence about animal cognitive and related abilities and the resultant moral implications. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today, Andrew. Welcome to AR Zone. Thanks very much indeed. It's uh, great to uh, be here and to be able to talk to you on the far sides of the world where you obviously are. <laughs> Andrew, there are so many topics we'd like to discuss with you today, but I'd like to begin by asking about your book, which is The Costs and Benefits of Animal Experiments. As I've already mentioned, the book brings together much of your research. Would you please speak about why you wrote the book and what you hope people will learn from it? Okay, well, I've been working on animal experimentation for around about five to ten years. Uh, indeed, I published my first study when I was a student, uh, more like 15 years ago. I was asked by the director of the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics, uh, Professor Andrew Lindsay, to bring my publications together and turn them into a book, if I could, uh, on animal experimentation within a advanced series of books on animal ethics being produced by uh, the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics in conjunction with Paul Grave Macmillan Publishers. So that series um, is currently underway. Um, my book was the third book in the series. Um, there are around about eight or nine that have now been published and, and more underway. And all of them seek to provide uh, introductory or advanced level texts on animal ethics issues. So my book was the, obviously the book on animal experimentation. Uh, so it's really the, the culmination of quite a number of years of work uh, looking at the uh, utility of invasive animal research in seeking to advance human health care, uh, looking at the types of alternative research strategies that are available, also considering the issue of animal use or invasive animal use in education, particularly uh, biomedical education, that is life and health sciences such as veterinary education, and also considering the impacts of that animal use on student attitudes toward animals. So my book covers all of those topics. And what makes it particularly important, I think, is that it cites more than 500 
academic publications, including large numbers of animal experiments. In particular, it relies upon large-scale systematic reviews of animal experiments as its primary form of evidence. What that means is it's different from previous books that have used examples of animal experiments that are uh, that are not consistent with human outcomes, have not contributed to human clinical advancements, or examples where the authors feel that the animal experiments have done those things. This is known in the scientific or academic world as cherry-picking. You cherry-pick examples to support one side of the argument or the other side of the argument. The way to uh, avoid that and to make your argument as robust and strong as possible is really to conduct large-scale reviews where you try to pull in all relevant pieces of evidence or at least a very large number of them and if you can't look at all of them such as all animal experiments in a group because there are too many then if you look at any subsets you use randomization or other impartial and methodical means to select your group of experiments that you study and, and that's what I've done. I've, I've actually um, searched the scientific literature for uh, publications for studies which describe systematic reviews which have examined how often animal experiments have contributed to human healthcare advancements and, and how often they are consistent with human clinical outcomes. And uh, because I've done this and because the 27 systematic reviews I found form the core of the evidence in my book, it provides a level of evidence which is considered to be much more scientifically rigorous uh, than any of the books that have looked at this issue so far. And that, that's what the reviewers have been saying. So I hope that, and I believe that, it will be taken much more seriously by the scientific community, the academic community, because it provides just a much more reliable level of evidence about this issue uh, than we've had so far. Thanks, Andrew. The book was published in 2011 as a hardback. Are there any plans to release it as a paperback in the future? Yeah, um, the publisher um, has agreed to make the paperback available, uh, because of the positive reviews that have, have come out. Um, and they're hoping to do that presently in November of this year. Uh, so, so that's the current plan. I'm very excited about the paperback coming out because uh, it'll be much more affordable than the current hardback ac academic text. So it's my dearest, uh, I suppose, dream for the book that it find its way into as many libraries as possible, particularly university libraries, so that students who are doing assignments about animal experimentation or, or others that are interested in the issue uh, will have ready access to it. So I would be very keen on uh, encouraging uh, local animal protection organisations to consider ordering the very cheap paperback copies when they become available and simply donating them to university libraries in the area or other libraries in the area to make sure this kind of information is, is widely available to science students and others. Andrew, the position that you talk about in the book is not that there are no benefits that can be achieved by experimentation on other animals, but that those benefits are likely to be or almost will be outweighed by the cost to the uh, individuals that are experimented on. Is that right? Well, what I've done is I've found these 27 systematic reviews and in 25 of these cases the authors concluded that the animal experiments did not contribute substantially to human clinical developments or, or the outcomes of the animal experiments were not consistent with human clinical outcomes. In two cases they concluded that, that they, they were 
one of those was contentious because the uh, authors used a very small sample size, so the conclusions really um, uh, can be vigorously challenged. In another case, there, there was actually consistency between uh, the use of uh, antibiotics in uh, an animal disease model, uh, human patients with a similar disease, and in vitro cell cultures uh, where, where those bacteria uh, were grown. So uh, I think what the evidence demonstrates when you look at these this very large body of systematic reviews is that uh, animal experiments and, and human patients do sometimes have concordant uh, outcomes. They are sometimes the same. As, as they would be uh, between different animal species. But they also demonstrate that uh, the efficiency of animal experimentation as a tool for trying to advance human health care is extremely low. Uh, it's, I think, implausible to uh, propose that out of the literally millions of animal experiments that have been conducted over the course of history, none of them will have had outcomes that are consistent with those of human patients or and none of them will have had uh, links to various healthcare advancements. Um, you can certainly question uh, what might have happened had the resources been redirected away from very expensive animal experiments uh, into other fields of research, but, but we will never know uh, what medical developments might have occurred had that have happened. What we can say uh, with clarity is that when you look at large-scale systematic reviews that provide the most reliable standard of evidence we have about these questions, they quite clearly demonstrate that animal experiments uh, comprise a very inefficient tool for trying to advance human health care. They're very expensive in terms of consumption of financial resources, scientific resources, skilled personnel. Uh, they're enormously expensive and of course they consume an enormous number of animal lives. The return for that is very low. Uh, it's, I don't think we can say it's, it's zero, but it is certainly very low. So that's, uh, I think that's very important from a public health and policy-making perspective. That, that makes sense to me. Can I, I just want to play the devil's advocate for a minute, if I may. Um, and it, and it, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that I read in the book where you talk about um, carcinogens and the research that's been done, so there are a number of substances that prove carcinogenic in other animals, but a significantly l a lesser number of those substances prove to be carcinogenic in human beings. So they, they test, yeah. right? So yeah. w w wouldn't a scientist say, though, um, and again, I'm just playing the devil's advocate, wouldn't a scientist say, though, that, that what makes a substance carcinogenic in other animals and not in human beings is something that's worth understanding? on its own as a way to understanding what makes something cancer-causing? People sometimes do uh, say, yes, they uh, believe that conducting these experiments on animals generates uh, increased knowledge about the mechanisms uh, of disease causation and disease progression and uh, things like that, and the responses to toxins such as carcinogens, responses to various pharmaceutical agents or other external compounds. The problem with that scientifically, not even bringing in ethical considerations, is that we simply can't translate that information reliably to human beings. Uh, it's very much potluck. Uh, sometimes the information does translate, sometimes it doesn't translate. 
And we never know until after we've done the experiment in human beings, that is, human clinical trials. So the first humans involved in these clinical trials are always uh, the human equivalent of, of test guinea pigs, regardless of what animal testing has gone before. Um, with respect to carcinogen testing, many compounds are known to, well, are found to be carcinogenic in animal tests uh, that are then found not to be carcinogenic in people. And the reasons for that aren't just related to the fact that animals and, and people are different organisms, but there are a lot of problems with the actual tests themselves. Uh, in order to try and maximise the sensitivity of the test, they tend to use extremely high dosages uh, and dosing frequencies that are also very high, which bear no realistic resemblance to the natural exposures that might occur out in the normal environment. Um, in the normal environment, animals or people that are exposed to toxins uh, would receive usually low doses with prolonged periods in between those doses that would allow things like DNA repair mechanisms and tissue repair mechanisms to operate effectively. In the laboratory, these mechanisms tend to be overwhelmed by the unrealistically high dosages, the unrealistically high dosing frequencies, and their immune systems are often also suppressed by the high levels of stress associated with being housed in the relatively barren laboratory environments and also the stress associated with both the invasive procedures, which is well understood, but also the more common procedures, uh, such as gavaging, which is the insertion of a, a tube down the throat for the forced administration of uh, test compounds orally. That's a very common procedure in toxicity studies and that's known to cause substantial stress as well. And this kind of stress is also known to compromise the immune system. So you actually are using uh, altered or indeed damaged animal models to try and uh, predict what uh, is going to occur in, in very different human beings. Thank you. Andrew, I'll ask you the, the question that I ask all our guests on um, the AI Zone uh, podcasts. Um, how was it that you first... Uh, became vegan what what uh, what caused that to happen and um, for you to uh, continue and to work for animal protection well um, I think as with many of us it was because of concern for animals in my particular case I was given a book on baby animals when I was about eight years old and I looked at the cute uh, baby deer and other animals and announced to my parents that I was no, no longer going to eat animals, and they sort of smiled and thought this would only last a week. Uh, a decade later, I was still there. I was I was vegetarian then. I wasn't uh, vegan, but uh, when the end of that decade um, passed, I met a girl who was a veterinary nurse, and she was vegetarian as well, and we both, uh, as we were dating, we both tried hard to impress each other, and we I tried to impress her upon her what a wonderful ethical person I was by actually going vegan, and and uh, that 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 was wonderful, but it did also require that I toss out my entire sweet collection, which I had been collecting for several years and uh, was uh, several rows of jars high in my kitchen. I was very proud of it. So uh, unfortunately, those sweets weren't vegan, so I had to chuck them all out. So as you can see, the demands of romance can unfortunately sometimes be merciless. But uh, nevertheless, it was um, had the desired effect. We uh, carried on uh, dating and, and had a wonderful relationship for a while there so obviously uh, 
obviously that worked out well in the end. But um, I guess uh, I, I like to hope that not all vegans have such an ulterior motive. And uh, I guess my own motivations must have been a bit deeper than that because uh, I'm, I'm still vegan many years later today, uh, even though that relationship is, is no more. So that's how I became vegan. With respect to how did I start to really advocate uh, for animals, well, again, it was in my early 20s. I'd actually been a human rights activist uh, quite a bit. I guess I went through that phase many young people do at university where they're very much exploring different philosophies and exploring uh, their own philosophies about life and what they want to do with their lives. And um, in my case, I was interested in human rights. I got involved in the Red Cross Soup Patrol in the city where I lived. Uh, I was involved with Amnesty International, international campaign to ban landmines. One day, uh, when I was working, uh, I was actually working as a computer technician in the Kuwait Foreign Petroleum Exploration Company in my city. And I found a manual lying around the office this was around about the time that Kuwait was invaded by Iraq. And I discovered uh, a detailed description by Amnesty International of the appalling human rights abuses that were occurring inside Kuwait. And I, I was shocked, and that, that motivated me to consider much more um, the issue of human rights violations and to get more actively involved in campaigning on that. It was only a little bit later when I realised that the abuses that are inflicted on animals um, are of a similar nature to those that had been inflicted on the people that I was reading about in this book. Uh, the abuses in laboratories, the abuses uh, on intensive farms involving surgical mutilations without uh, painkillers or anaesthesia. I realised that those abuses caused a similar level of suffering but there was one thing that wasn't similar the numbers of animals affected was literally millions of times greater than the numbers of people uh, affected around the world, even though the ability to suffer wasn't millions of times different. In fact, it was very similar. So when I realised that, I realised that the most important issue uh, morally and ethically seemed to be focusing on animal rights and animal advocacy, and that's when I switched and made that my primary focus, and uh, everything I've done since then has really led from that. Andrew, I note you're a spokesperson for Animals Count. Would it not be better to support the Green Party and work to improve their already very good policies on animal protection, seeing as Animals Count being a single issue party would never be able to form a government, whereas the Green Party conceivably could? Some people certainly do ask us that. Uh, now, there are some within the Green Party and some other parties who are wonderful, have strong policies for animals, have a track record of advocating on behalf of animals. But unfortunately, this is far from uniform, including within the Green Party. And unless and until the Green Party makes this uniform, uh, there will be a need, uh, a role for a dedicated party that aims to take the leadership uh, on advocating for animals within the political spectrum. We do uh, take leadership on that issue within the United Kingdom. We also, however, are careful to make sure that we're not labelled as a single-issue party because we also support a wide range of other policies which we consider to be socially and environmentally responsible as well, although we don't uh, consider our role to actually take leadership on those other issues. 
So we hope that by providing an example of um, sort of model policies on a range of animal issues, we can encourage their adoption by other parties as well, particularly when we uh, are able to make it a political issue, demonstrate that uh, votes can be won and lost sometimes uh, on these sorts of issues. So that, that's really our objective to to not so much be elected ourselves, uh, although we would love that, but in particular to try to have some level of influence on parties that are larger than us, sometimes much larger, to try to see if we can encourage the adoption of more progressive policies by those parties. Andrew, you studied your veterinary course at West Australia's Murdoch University where you found yourself drawn into a huge struggle for students to conscientiously object to the harmful use of other animals and for the implementation of humane teaching methods. By the end of your course in 2001, Murdoch, I believe, had become the first Australian university to formally allow student conscientious objection and you'd established the first humane veterinary surgical training program. Unfortunately, the University of Queensland continues today to perform invasive non-recovery surgery on other animals, specifically on pigs and greyhounds, as part of their veterinary students' training. A friend of mine, um, Simone Hewitt, from Non-Human Rescue Ops here in Queensland, has said that you've been a huge help to her and to her organisation in their fight against this horrible practice. I'd like to ask you why you think this is still happening in 2012 when there are so many alternatives available and why, other than non-human rescue ops, to my knowledge, no large organisations in Australia are actually willing to address this issue in a serious way? Well, I think there's very much a culture within veterinary schools, um, or there has been a culture, um, supportive of invasive animal research uh, and supportive of what we call terminal surgical laboratories, which is where students practice surgical procedures on healthy animals and then kill them at the end of the procedure. Uh, unfortunately, that has the way it's traditionally been done. It's logistically very easy for academics to go and purchase uh, or receive a, a donation of a large number of animals at a predictable day of the week and uh, bring them into a surgical training lab and then uh, ensure that they're all killed at the end of the laboratory. So the idea of setting up alternatives uh, can be viewed as being logistically difficult and something that busy academics don't have time for. They can also be uh, philosophically opposed. They see uh, allowing humane teaching methods as perhaps being the thin end of the wedge and are concerned that if they do that, then it could lead to questioning of other invasive research happening elsewhere within the veterinary school. And of course, uh, academics aren't just there to teach. Uh, the primary interest of perhaps the majority of them is really their own research. And for a small group, that uh, means invasive research on animals. So there's a strong culture uh, in supportive of research generally, and also in particular supportive of invasive research on animals. And there's a lot of fear, which uh, is certainly not necessarily justified, that allowing humane teaching methods could lead to more wholesale challenging of invasive animal research outside of the teaching areas. So I think uh, these are the reasons why uh, this, these practices have continued. Now, at the University of Queensland, because of the campaign, campaign run by Simone in particular, non-human rescue ops, and also other organisations, and I know that Animals Australia, for example, has been involved 
much more behind the scenes uh, involved on the relevant governmental advisory bodies that have recommended that the terminal use of pound dogs be ended at the University of Queensland and that humane teaching methods be introduced instead. Because of the pressure from uh, Animals Australia, from non-human rescue ops, from the concerned public who've published letters to the editor and contacted the local councils supplying pound dogs and so on, the, uh, there was a very important report which was actually presented to the relevant minister, approved by the relevant minister, uh, which directed really the veterinary school to uh, cease using uh, pound-sourced dogs, that is, dogs from animal shelters, for use in these terminal surgical laboratories. So this uh, presented the university with a great opportunity. They felt they had to comply with this directive. Uh, they also recognised that perhaps that um, social uh, concern about this issue has been increasing. Social values have been changing over time. What might once have been more acceptable socially was no longer considered to be so and that they were going to have to change. Now, the really unfortunate thing is that instead of taking this uh, wonderful opportunity to implement state-of-the-art humane teaching methods and programs, unfortunately the university seems to have quite cynically switched to the use of pigs, instead uh, reasoning that pigs would generate uh, a lot less public sympathy than dogs from pounds. So uh, it's most unfortunate that the university has not taken a stronger approach to the introduction of humane teaching methods even though it is uh, commendable that at least they've ceased using pound dogs, uh, thanks to uh, the cam campaign by Simone and, and others in that area. Thanks, Andrew. Is, you're right, yeah, they've, they've started using baby pigs. Apparently the baby pigs are easier to lift up onto the tables. Um, and that, Unfortunately, that's... That, that was also very much the practice at my veterinary school, Murdoch University, when I was a student there, and as far as I know, it's still the practice. Uh, they had a similar campaign in the mid-1990s which also resulted in the relevant councils uh, ceasing the supply of their pound dogs and unfortunately Murdoch also switched to the use of pigs, again cynically believing they would generate less public sympathy and, and less support for uh, the ending of, of their use. Yeah, it's, I think it's the same with the greyhounds. There's actually a TV commercial being seen in Queensland at the moment for UQ and, and in the commercial they have actually have two greyhounds, one on a table and one being forced into a table. So it's obviously something that they're not concerned ethically about to be, to be advertising it in that way. Is there anything you can recommend for people like Simone to move forward on this and, and to make some even more significant changes? Well, uh, the thing that seems to have been successful in so many campaigns is actually getting good footage uh, and making that available to the mass media, particularly television or the print media. Uh, when this has occurred in veterinary schools around the world, it's quite often resulted in dramatic effects. Uh, there have been veterinary schools that have completely ended the uh, harmful use of animals in units uh, within a 10-day period, for example, when this has occurred in, in the US. So that kind of uh, footage, if it can be obtained, uh, is extremely powerful. The other side is that uh, these organisations need to present a rational, reasonable, intelligent argument backed up by evidence, such as that in uh, the published educational studies that I make available uh, to the government, to the veterinary school, to anybody who will listen to demonstrate they do have a rational, reasonable argument backed up by very solid evidence and 
the other side, it really doesn't have any argument to counter it. It sounds like good advice. Thanks, Andrew. Andrew, can you explain what you see as the most promising uh, methods that could be uh, used as alternatives to this kind of experimentation so that, so that the uh, use of living, living beings would be either drastically reduced or eliminated? Are we talking about uh, veterinary surgical training? Because I can certainly comment on that. Uh, yeah, that or uh, just animal experimentation in general, which, whichever, or both. Okay. Well, with respect to animal experimentation in general, I, I have uh, an entire chapter in my book uh, dedicated to the use of so-called replacement methodologies, which are uh, non-animal uh, methodologies in scientific research and testing. Uh, there are also so-called reduction and refinement methodologies. These are methods designed to reduce the numbers of animals or uh, to, to, to use the term uh, refine their use so that uh, less suffering results and they have a better quality of life. So literally I have about 20,000 words on these topics. With respect to veterinary surgical training, uh, I suppose that that's a good example of, of how to deal with the the most severe form of animal use in, in biomedical education. Um, ideally, a humane veterinary surgical training uh, course, such as the one that I set up when I was a veterinary student, should comprise three stages. In the first stage, students should practice their basic instrument handling and their hand-eye coordination skills using knot tying boards, plastic organs and similar models and mannequins. Secondly, students should simulate surgeries and other clinical procedures on cadavers obtained from animals that have been euthanised for medical reasons and donated for teaching purposes, similar to human body donation programs. Thirdly, by far the most important stage, students should, students should uh, learn surgery by starting by uh, observing and then assisting with and then performing beneficial surgeries on real patients under close supervision, under one-to-one -one instruction, similar to the training of human surgeons. A very uh, popular part of these is animal shelter sterilisation programs. This is where animals are sourced from shelters, homeless animals. They're neutered so they can't go on to breed and contribute further to the pet overpopulation the shelter is trying to address. And then they're returned for adoption, which increases their adoption rates and prevents a range of diseases they could have later on. So they're, they're extremely popular because they provide such a worthwhile community service. They also provide invaluable practice at one of the most common procedures uh, newly graduated veterinarians will be called upon to perform once they start their jobs. So that, that's a very good example of a win-win situation involving useful veterinarians in education. I'm going to guess that the veterinary students themselves are probably quite supportive of those sorts of things, aren't they? They're very supportive of the animal shelter sterilisation programs. Students, uh, Veterinary students in general have a real concern and even a fear of uh, starting their jobs uh, with insufficient clinical experience. The curriculum is extremely full. There is so much to learn and often people feel they don't have enough uh, clinical experience in one area or another. In fact, I would say that's pretty much universal the time they graduate. The thing that scares graduates most, um, I, I think uh, pretty clearly for pretty much everybody, is the spay operation, female sterilisation, ovarian hysterectomy, because it's a major surgery. It's very common. We need to do it uh, very often. Uh, there's a potential for things to go wrong. And people often get very limited experience of that before they graduate. 
So the Animal Shelter Sterilisation Program provides pretty much intensive experience at doing exactly that, so it's extremely popular for this reason. Unfortunately, um, many veterinary students uh, don't understand the use of humane teaching methods otherwise very well, and they have an unwarranted fear that their use means that they would get a lot less uh, experience with uh, live animals and practicing actual surgical, surgical procedures and so they're actually quite opposed sometimes uh, to their introduction at universities. That's really just because of a lack of knowledge and understanding about, about the topic. Thank you. Andrew, uh, you're obviously an extremely fit guy. Uh, how important do you think it is for vegans to try to keep as fit and healthy as possible? in order to be better ambassadors for veganism. I wish I was extremely fit, Ronnie. I have a dedicated training program that involves eating lots of uh, vegan cake and coffee. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't resulted in the athletic results that I have been aiming for, so I clearly need to redouble my efforts. Um, how important do I think it is that vegans in general try to be fit and healthy? I think it's, it's certainly important. Uh, we can't all dedicate our lives to this, but in a sense, uh, to some degree, we're, we're ambassadors for our diet and our lifestyle, and it's not only beneficial to us personally, but it's beneficial to the cause of veganism, I think. If we are fit and active people, and we can demonstrate to sceptics and doubters that vegans can, in fact, be fit and healthy and can have fun and active lives, and that's certainly what uh, I've, I've sought to do uh, by setting up the Extreme Vegan Sporting Association. So it helps us individually. We'll certainly all feel better personally. I feel very good by my training program that involves eating vegan cake. Um, but it also, I think, uh, helps to present a positive message to the rest of society, and I think that's very important. Andrew, in regard to the Extreme Vegan Sporting Association, which, as you said, you set up yourself, um, I'm told that you'll be competing in the very first vegan ultramarathon in five days. Could you please speak a little bit about in general about the association, why you created it, and um, more specifically what a vegan ultramarathon is, please. Good grief. Uh, five days, you've frightened me there. I've just looked at my watch <laughs> and to my horror that it is indeed true. Um, so that, that's, a bit of a, that's a bit of a fear. Uh, yeah, the, the first uh, vegan ultramarathon follows on from our successful vegan 15 peaks challenge two years ago, which was when an all-vegan team uh, attempted to walk... Uh, well, to actually climb every mountain in Snowdonia in Wales on the same day, and that is a total of 15 peaks that are, are above 3,000 feet each. Uh, but because we can't navigate, um, we climb one of them twice, so we actually climb 16 peaks. So, so we succeeded on, on that occasion. It took us about 21 hours. Uh, so the only thing left to do, really, um, is to try and try and run them all. We've been increasing every year. The, the first year we climbed the highest mountain in England, Scotland and Wales in the same day. Um, and then we did this 15 peaks and now we've got to run the 15 peaks. If we succeed with, with this, I guess the next thing will be trying to repeat the whole thing blindfolded or something like that. So as you say, it is in five days. So I'm awfully uh, worried about that. I'm going to have to redouble my efforts to eat lots and lots of vegan cake and make sure that I'm fully uh, fueled and ready to go when next I wish you luck with it. Hopefully you might be able to come back and speak with us about it after it's all done. 
If I do survive, I'd be uh, most keen. Uh, unfortunately, it does involve about 4,000 metres of elevation and about 45 kilometres. So, as I say, if, if I do survive. <laughs> Good luck with that. Thank you. I'm going to need it. Andrew, you note that there are moral considerations when it comes to certain other animals that may not apply to other animals. I think is, if I'm if I'm reading you right, for instance, you mentioned that chimpanzees might be properly thought of as non-human persons. You also say that we don't have any solid evidence that most invertebrates, maybe with the exception of cephalopods, are sentient. Yep. Could you speak? Could you speak about the moral implications of considering some other animals as non-human persons, and also how do you conceive of our moral responsibility to insects and other in, invertebrates? Okay. Well, the idea that humans should be given fundamental rights, I believe, originated uh, in association with the concept of personhood. Uh, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. Uh, I believe, first described in detail the concept of personhood in which he described persons as being individual autonomous agents uh, that were worthy of moral consideration and moral respect. And he felt that every person should be accorded equal moral consideration and had equal dignity regardless of how equal each person actually was in terms of their uh, individual abilities so since that time, the idea of personhood has been associated with the uh, concept of rights and in, indeed with fundamental rights such as uh, the right to things like life, liberty and freedom from torture, for example. So with a colleague, uh, a philosopher, again a German philosopher, but uh, not as old as Immanuel Kant, uh, I published an academic paper in the Journal of Animal Ethics in uh, 2011, in which we looked at the latest uh, published scientific, scientific evidence about characteristics in various animal species, such as uh, communicative abilities, cognitive ability, related capacities, and also uh, basic uh, cultures, animal cultures, and behavioural patterns that varied from community to community, for example, in primate species. Uh, we noted that there was evidence that many of these characteristics existed uh, to various and often quite advanced degrees amongst species such as primates, uh, corvids, that's crows and ravens and similar birds, dolphins and so on. Uh, and we con con concluded that on the basis of traditional understandings of the concept of personhood, um, such species that possess these sorts of characteristics ought to be included within uh, that understanding of, of personhood and so logically should be afforded uh, fundamental rights similar to those that have uh, traditionally been granted to human beings. Now that, that certainly does raise interesting questions about other species uh, where there isn't evidence of such characteristics or at least to the same degree. And what, one of the things we did in our paper was we noted the point that uh, across the wide range of species there isn't, uh, with respect to any of these morally relevant characteristics, there often isn't a sharp all or nothing divide whereby some species have these characteristics and they have them fully developed and other species don't have them at all. The way that uh, biodiversity works and the evolution has developed 
be that uh, many of these characteristics do exist to varying different degrees, and the differences are differences of degree rather than differences of kind. So we felt that uh, it was logically consistent to uh, provide a or to grant a strong set of fundamental rights to some species but to deny them completely to others when the characteristics uh, were differing only in degrees and perhaps small degrees between those, those various different species. So I guess our argument to, to against uh, drawing such a sharp moral distinction, another obvious argument is that our knowledge of the morally relevant characteristics of various species, that is things like cognitive and related capacities, community and so on, is, is very limited in many cases and we are continuing to find out uh, surprising things all the time and no doubt as we continue to study other species we'll continue to learn of the existence of their amazing abilities. So I think that where uh, significant doubt exists, if we're to consider ourselves moral agents, we need to err on the side of caution and give the relevant animals the benefit of, of such doubts. Thank you. Andrew, our final question for today is about the future. You have some speaking tours coming up in Australia, New Zealand, Peru and possibly some other locations. Could you please let us know a little more about those tours and what we can look forward to hearing from you? Uh, certainly. Thank you for asking. I've been uh, invited to go to Peru in uh, three weeks uh, to speak at a couple of conferences, including one for animal rights activists and a series of universities on humane teaching methods, particularly a series of veterinary schools. So I'll be seeking to demonstrate some examples of humane teaching methods, things like surgical and clinical trainers, models and mannequins, and give a whole series of PowerPoint presentations on on a variety of topics, particularly animal experimentation, humane teaching methods. Uh, later, I'd very much like to come out to Australia, ideally during the middle of the English winter, if at all possible, but um, any time would be fine to uh, actually speak on the main themes of my recent book, which of course is very much a scientific critique of animal experimentation and a detailed review of the types of alternative strategies that are available and another look at the use of animals in education and so on. So I'd like to tour certainly all the major capital cities in Australia and hopefully New Zealand as well, if that's possible. I'm currently trying to work out the dates for that, but I expect it to be somewhere between uh, late September this year through to uh, perhaps February of next year. Uh, and at this stage, it's looking like it will be more like uh, October or November, but uh, I'm not sure yet. Excellent. That's something for us to look forward to. Thank you. If that all is a success, I'd very much like to bring in other European countries, bring in North America, come to anywhere uh, that will have me. I, I do have a range of topics that I'm, I'm very keen to deliver uh, presentations on and I've, I've given many times at conferences and quite a range of animal use issues and I'm, I'm keen to get the word out as much as I can. That's great. Thanks, Andrew. Um, Thank you also so much for your time today. We sincerely appreciate it. Before we say goodbye, is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you'd like to mention? Not really. I, th I think you've done a great job. If, if we do get the opportunity on, on a future occasion to uh, talk about uh, vegetarian companion animal diets, then uh, I'd, I'd really uh, love to do that. And obviously the 15 peaks, if I do actually survive that, would be great <laughs> to tell the story. 
that's yeah that would be fantastic that, that we'd really look forward to that thank you again so much for your visit to AR zone today and also for everything that you're doing and accomplishing for other animals thank you thanks very much indeed for having me on giving me, me the opportunity to talk and I'm sorry my answers have been uh, very long in some cases no we appreciate as much detail as possible so Thank you for listening to AR Zone. Please visit us online at www.arzone.net and look for us on iTunes.